If you have your Bible, go ahead uh, and go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to read to you all the way to verse 13. We'll cover the entire chapter, but uh, I'm going to read the first 13 verses right here. If you don't know who I am, my name is Colton. I am one of the pastors here, and I am looking forward to this text. 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for him for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab. And thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks, looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this this one, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. All right, well, we started last week a new series called After God's Heart, uh, where we're going to be journeying through the books of First and Second Samuel for about the next two and a half Months And in these two books, uh, we are looking at the life of David. David is one of the most iconic characters, not only in Christianity, but all the world. I mean, he's one of the most documented figures in all of history. The only person who has inspired more art pieces than David is Jesus. So there you go. The statue of David in Florence attracts over a million visitors a year and grosses over seven million Dollars. He's the slayer of Goliath. How many of you were watching college football yesterday and at one point someone said, this is the modern David and Goliath, right? Someone always says that. Um, it's, it's, his life is known not just by people in the church, followers of Christ, but his life is known by the world. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, David is one of the most complicated characters. For all the kings that would come after him, they, the good ones would be known as those who walked in the ways of David, right? But he had massive failings as a husband, as a father, as a leader. 
that there are times where we will see David walk by incredibly faith, incredible faith. And there are times when we see David fail miserably. And I can imagine that for all of us in here, we can resonate with that. That there are moments in our lives when we are walking by faith with the Lord, but then there are moments in our lives where we are failing miserably. That we have these moments where we're trusting God, but then we have these moments where we go back to the same old sin over and over again. But in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about David, it doesn't talk about his successes and it doesn't talk about his failures. It calls him a man after God's heart. And that's my prayer for us today. That's my prayer for us for the rest of this series is that we would learn not what it means to be successful, but that we would learn what it looks like to be a man, a woman after God's own heart. Um, if you were here last week, I flew through chapters one through 15. It was an experience, y'all. Um, and it was a fun one. We saw the prayers of Hannah, the birth and rise of Samuel. Uh, we saw the rise of Saul and then the beginnings of the fall of Saul. And today we are finally introduced to our main character, David. God took a long time in this book, in the Bible really, to set this whole thing up. And I think it's because partly the Bible wants us to understand the dire circumstances we find ourselves in, in the text today. That things as they are for the people of God, they are not good. They demanded for a king. They were given Saul. He was handsome. He was tall. He had all the externals of a good king. But as we saw last week, the heart did not match the externals. And we ended last week with him being rejected as king. And now the narrative is going to shift to David. But it's interesting Yes, we are introduced to David in chapter 16, but this chapter isn't really about David at all. See, many of us in this room, we come to this moment familiar with the story. But if you were reading this for the first time and knew nothing about David, then all you would know about this book is that Saul has been rejected and God has sought out a new king. Someone he says is a man after God's own heart. And the Bible doesn't even give you David's name until the end of this chapter. So you wouldn't know who this person was. So today we're getting introduced to David in a way, but really this chapter, this story, this introduction, it isn't about David at all. It's about the God of David. We're gonna learn more about God than we are gonna learn about David today, which is really cool. So let's begin in Samuel 16, starting in verse one. And it actually starts off with God confronting Samuel's disappointment. He says, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I provided for myself a king among his sons. So if you remember at the end of the last chapter, chapter 15, both God and Samuel were grieving. In chapter 15, 35, it said Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death and Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. And we talked about how that word regret, it's not that God has made a mistake, but it carries the idea of sorrow or grief, that God isn't making a mistake here, but rather God is expressing his grief for how the choosing of King Saul has brought sin and suffering to his people, that Saul's indecision and insecurity led him to lead the people of God astray. So instead of God's king leading the people of God to worship God, The king over God's people is lacking. And so God and Samuel grieve at the end of chapter 15. But when we get to chapter 16, 
we find that Samuel is still grieving and God is calling him out of that grief. I want to talk about that for a second because this is too important to be passed over. Does God grieve with us in our suffering and when we sin? Yeah, he does. God knows and understands your pain. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He wants to call you out of sin into repentance. Can you grieve over lost hopes and dreams? Yeah, you can. Samuel grieves over Saul. Samuel grieves over Saul, but there comes a time when God is going to call him out of that grief. He says, Saul, how long are you going to grieve? I've rejected him for being king over Israel. And so we see here that at one point, both Samuel and God were grieving over Saul, but now God has moved on as calling Samuel out of it. Samuel, how long are you going to grieve? And so we were left with, how come God has moved on, but Samuel hasn't? It's because of one very important reason that I pray that we all understand. It's that the Lord of the universe holds all things in his hands. And we see here that he grieves with Samuel in the present, but now he begins to push Samuel towards his providential plans to the future. So listen, is it okay to grieve what has happened in the past and how that affects you in the present? Yeah, it is. But there is great hope when we trust in the sovereign God who has already planned out the future. And so you see on one hand, God is grieving with Saul, but on the other, in God's providence, he is moving towards planned providing for what's going to happen in the future. That word provide here, it's also the word for see, okay? Um, So God, there's two parallel things happening here. God is saying, I have provided and I have seen. God, who is not constrained by time, has reached into the future to provide a king, and he has seen to it that it will happen. So a better way to translate that word provided could be, I have seen to it. I have seen to it, Samuel, that there is a king among Jesse's sons. So here's the irony of this moment. Samuel grieves grieves over a dark and broken past, but God has provided for and seen that the future is filled with light. God was reminding Samuel here, don't forget what I do. I provide, I see to it that my will is accomplished. It's okay to grieve, but Samuel, it's time to move forward in what I have planned. And God moves Samuel away from a place of grief into a place of hope. And this is true in all of our stories. In light of the hope of salvation that is found in Christ and the hope of heaven that is promised, we will all have moments in this life that need to be grieved, that need to be dealt with, that we really need to consider how the things of this world, how our sin, how our suffering, is holistically affecting us, where we wonder, man, what could have been if things would have been different? And so grieving is okay, and you should grieve your sufferings and your failings, but we should, as believers, be weary of despair. Be weary of despair. But we were not intended to live lives of despair. Despair says, I have no hope. I have no hope for the future. Because to say I have no hope for the future is a misunderstanding of who God is and what he does. That time and time again, God reminds us that he provides and sees to it that his promises in the future are fulfilled. Because he's sovereign. He has all control. 
and he has planned out our lives, that there is hope for us as the believer because Jesus has overcome. Remember, David is a foreshadow of the King of Kings. Samuel, look forward, I have provided and I have seen. So there is a place for the dual reality of grief and hope, grief for the darkness of the past, but hope that is found in God's promise and sovereignty of the future. The question for us is, do you see the sovereign God's hand in your life? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God is seeing to it that he is working in your future, in our future? We should adequately grieve the past, but never lose sight of the work of God that is waiting for us in the future. And so God begins to move Samuel forward in this story. And Samuel moves from disappointment to fear. In verse two, he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So God says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel knows that he's being watched. King Saul is dangerous. We didn't read it last week, but Saul's already tried to kill his son, Jonathan, uh, because Saul is insecure. And so God gives Samuel a cover story. It was legitimate for religious leaders to make sacrifices in rural, rural areas. And so he essentially says, that cow is your alibi. Take it with you and invite Jesse's family to the feast. So in verse four, it says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him and said, do you come peaceably? Everyone's nervous when Samuel shows up. Samuel, a daunting figure in Israel. He would have been known by everyone and it would have been known that Samuel and Saul had had a falling out. So maybe Jesse's family is thinking, okay, are we gonna be on the bad side of Saul now? Samuel assures them, I've just come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then we meet Jesse's sons. And his oldest, Eliab, comes to the front. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, see that word see again, provided. You'll see it over and over in this text. The Lord sees, not as man sees. The man, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's interesting in this moment, even after everything Samuel has been through, what's he do? He goes back to old patterns, doesn't he? Which on one hand is terrifying, but it's also encouraging, right? Can we make the same mistakes over and over again? Yeah, we can. We can make the same, the same sin, the same line of thinking that has got us tr in trouble in the past, it's hard to let go of sometimes. And so Samuel thinks, surely this guy is the Lord's anointed. And God says, hey, do not look on appearance. You don't see as I see. You don't see people like I do. You don't see the future like I do. You don't see the world like I do. You don't even see yourself like I do. I see like no man. And God uses the same language he uses with Saul. He says, I have rejected him. We find out in the next chapter that Eliab not only has Saul's appearance, but he also has Saul's temperament. He's a bully. He's dangerous. He's got the characteristics of a king, but he lacks character. And we learn something about God here in this moment. We learn how he sees us, that he does not see as man sees. He doesn't see our outward appearance, but he looks on your heart. And I wonder for how many of us in here that terrifies us because we spend a lot of time making sure everyone else around us sees us a certain way. But in our heart, we know what the Lord sees. 
we know, you know, I know what we're hiding from one another, what you hide from your spouse or your kids or your coworkers and what you're so afraid of that if people found this out, found out that you think like this or that you have shame over this, you're so terrified of what others might see and it's a terrifying reality when we realize that the Lord sees us. He sees us. He knows your hearts. He knows your heart of worship. He knows the joy that you have when you sing to him, when you read his word. He knows your suffering. He knows what you hide. He knows your shame. And so it's important for us to remember while we tend to focus on the externals, God focuses in on our heart. And so the question is, what does your heart worship? What do you think about? What do you care about? And what does your heart chase? Verse 10, it says, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before him. All of his sons have passed before. The Lord says, it's not them. It's not, it's not him. It's not him. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And this moment is awkward. Samuel says in verse 11, basically, hey, you got any other kids? Uh, are there any sons that you've forgotten about, Jesse? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, the one in the field, right? Which question for you folks that have like four plus kids. I'm just curious, do you ever forget any of your kids? <laughs> if you do, I would love to hear that story, make a video about it and play it because I think that that would be hilarious. Um, but I, I do wonder, do you get track of all your kids? Well, Jesse loses track of uh, his child and he said, there remains yet the youngest, verse 11, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel sounds like a, a mad grandpa here. Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Like, Come on, Jesse, what are you doing, right? Uh, the word youngest in Hebrew is the word hakaton. Everybody say that with me. Hakaton. You really got to get in there. Hakaton, right? Um, it's the word youngest. The, the Youngest is probably not the best translation for the word. It's the combination of two words in Hebrew. One is the word young, and the other is insignificant. Some scholars say the best translation for the word, and you may have heard this before, is runt. That the runt is out back. Uh, anybody here would know what a Pekingese looks like? A dog named P a Pekingese? Um, Google it sometime and get some good laughs. When I was a kid, we used to breed, my mom used to breed Pekingese. So at one point, we had like 15 Pekingese dogs running around our house. It was absolutely insanity. My child could, childhood could be a movie, I'm telling you, mostly because of these strange little dogs. They were loud and energetic. There would be times when there would be eight of them around me and we'd have two litters going. Um, and it was a common thing if you have a Pekingese for, that they would fight. They were mean little boogers, right? And when they would fight, it was common that one of their eyeballs would pop out, just like that. I'm not kidding. Um, their eyeballs would pop out, and it was my responsibility as the kid and boy in the family to pop it back in. So that was a normal part of my childhood was, I know, it's just got PG-13, y'all. Um, I'm just telling you about my life, okay? Um, anyways, every litter had a runt, it's always common if you know anything about um, animals and babies. There's, there's always a runt, and we always had a runt, and it was very common for the runt to be uh, pushed out by the siblings uh, so the where they wouldn't get food, and it was common for the mom to reject the runt if they were not able to get food for themselves. And here we see David forgotten. I think that's one of the things that stood out in this text. 
David is forgotten by his earthly father. And so maybe this is just a side note, but if you've ever been forgotten by your earthly father, just remember that if you were here, you were chosen by your heavenly father. David's forgotten. He's called the runt, the one that's rejected. We also learn here that he's a shepherd. That detail is going to be important next week. It's being a shepherd is a, is a lowly position. You're going to smell bad. You're going to be with the animals all day. You're going to be dirty. But as we go throughout David's life, you're going to see what God was planning with David, how he was preparing, how he was at the same time that he was providing for the future, he was preparing the one who would accomplish that future. And Psalm 78 talks about the choosing of David, God anointing David. In Psalm 78, 70, it says, he chose David, his, David, his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing news, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with the skillful hands. So we learn David's small, he's humble, he's skillful. And David was being equipped and prepared by God, even though David didn't know what he was being prepared for. We learn from Psalm 78 that he's sincere. That's what the word upright means. Literally, it means to have an undivided heart. That when you see David, you know what you get. You know in sincerity when you see it, right? When you can't trust someone, you can't trust what they say. It says David has an upright heart. You, what you see with him is true. We find out later exactly what God was doing by putting David in the fields. And one of the things that God was doing was he was putting David into solitude as a shepherd. That he was forging David into a worshiper in those pastures, in those times of God. In Psalm 78, 70, servant means worshiper, that it was in the solitude of the pasture that God forged a heart of sincere worship in David. And so don't be afraid of solitude with God. In our culture, we are wired to need a screen, to need something to occupy our minds. It's probably the thing that I struggle with the most, just being alone with God, with nothing but my thoughts. But we see all throughout scripture that it is in solitude many times that God will speak, that it's in that place that he will forge sincere, undivided hearts. And in verse 12, it says, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now it's debated on what exactly the word ready means. Some translations say, uh, translators say it means red-haired and freckled. Others say it means tan and stinky. And how one word can mean two very different things, I have no idea. Just saying. But regardless, he was ready and he had beautiful eyes. Um, if you have the NIV, it says that he was of fine appearance. That's a wimpy translation of that verse. Ignore it. Love the NIV. Um, but um, the literal translation is he has beautiful eyes, in which as a dude, sometimes we feel a little weird just reading that, right? Why is he described as he, because like if you're a woman, you go to the grocery store and the like cashier lady checks you out. It's not weird for you. I'm just, this is maybe more of a question. It's not weird for you to say, hey, you have beautiful eyes. Anyone ever told you that? Any women do that? Yeah, okay. That's completely normal. Guys don't do that. Like turn right now to the guy next to you and say, hey, I just want you to know you have beautiful eyes. It's just not normal for us to do that, right? But it's biblical. We need to start doing that, right? Thank you, Caden, for telling Kyle. Kyle, you have beautiful eyes. Um, so you've got 
David, right? He's ruddy. He's got nice eyes. He's, he's cute. That's what David is. He's cute. But he doesn't look like a strong warrior or a king. When you're choosing a warrior king, you want a guy that looks like he can kill some dudes. Don't care if he has nice eyes or not, right? You want a William Wallace. That's what you want. You want, if you will, a Saul. But David is just a runt kid with a baby face. He's more like Justin Timberlake than William Wallace. And here's the big lesson in this moment, okay? God has a habit of choosing the one that would not have been chosen and the one that would not have, we would not have thought as a people would be the one that God would choose. And he does that all the time, all throughout scripture, choosing the one that no one would have thought they would choose so that God can get all the glory, so that we can see the power of God and not the power of that one person. God chooses the humble offering of Abel and not the rich offering of Cain. God chooses the younger and weaker Jacob and not the firstborn Esau. God makes a promise to the ordinary Leah and not the beautiful Rachel, he chooses the stuttering Moses and not the smooth-talking Aaron. First Samuel 1, he chooses the barren Hannah and not the fertile Peninnah, right? When God raises up someone to do something great for his glory, he does not value what we value. He does not value our beauty or how skilled we are. He builds those things in us for his glory. He, he gives us power, influence to position us for his purposes, That's why he blesses us. It's not for our own glory. Remember verse seven, God does not look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And here's the central problem with Saul, okay? That gives us insight into why God has now chosen David. All of humanity searches for security, identity, and happiness. And the beauty of the gospel is that we find all of those things in Christ. In salvation, we find our security. We are safe in Christ. In salvation, we find our identity. I know who I am in Christ. In salvation, we find happiness. I have joy in Christ. And in salvation, when God chooses to save us, we find what our hearts have been searching for. And Saul modeled a life that said, come and find those things in me. That's what he did. Come and find security in me. Come and, I, want, I want approval. So now worship me. Samuel, just come honor me in front of the people. Come find those things of God in me. And God does not want us to search for those things in something other than him because that's called an idol. And so when God is choosing a leader, he chooses a leader that does not claim to have salvation for themselves, but rather points to the one who does. That's why God chooses David. So in verse 13, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him and in the, midst, in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So now we finally get the name of God's chosen. His name is David. And from this point on, David's name will be mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. Now, something interesting to observe as we go throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. When the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, does David's life get easier? No. For the rest of this book, he will be hunted by his enemies. Being a part of the great work of the glory of God does not mean that it will be absent of suffering. But because you do have the spirit of God within you, you are promised perspective 
in the midst of that suffering. And many of the Psalms that we read in our Bible were forged because God, God's spirit was put in David and gave David a holy perspective while he was being hunted. So can God do a great work through you? You bet he can. If you have found salvation of him, if you found security, identity, and happiness in him, then he can. And Ephesians says that he will work through you. Now, does it mean that it will always be easy? No, but in the midst of that suffering, you will have a holy perspective because God's spirit is in you. And as we move on in the story, you're gonna see the rise of David and the fall of Saul. And you see in the very next verse, 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now we got to talk about this. What in the world is going on here? So God's spirit departing from a human does not happen today. In fact, it's impossible. So let's make sure we understand this theologically. For the New Testament believer, what's happening here with Saul cannot happen. We are living on the other side of what is called Pentecost the revival, arrival of the Spirit of God, which you can read about in Acts chapter two. You get hints of it in the Old Testament, but you see it clearly in the New Testament. In Genesis, humanity is made from dust and what? The breath of God, right? The breath of God. It's, uh, it's, this, it's the word ruah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the word pneuma. And in Genesis three, when humanity rebels against God, God tells Adam, you are dust and to what will you return? What's gone? The breath of God is gone. There's no mention of the breath of God. All that remains is dust. The spirit of God deserts us. And what we will see, one of the threads in the great narrative of the Old Testament is the longing for the spirit of God to return. Isaiah 11 talks about the shoot from the stump of Jesse that will bring the spirit back. Remember what we talked about last week? Someone is coming. Someone is coming Someone is coming and someone is coming to bring the spirit back. When you get to the New Testament, people look to John the Baptist and they say, hey, you're the guy that we've been waiting for. And he says, no, I baptize with water, but the one who is coming will baptize with what? Spirit. He brings the wind of God back. And when Jesus shows up his first sermon, he says, the wind of God is with me. And after Jesus raised from the grave and defeated, defeated sin that separated us from God, John 20 says that he breathed on his disciples and said what? Receive the Holy Spirit. And you get to Ephesians 1, and Ephesians 1, 13, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So on this side of the resurrection, and on this side of Pentecost, if the spirit resides in the believer, it will not be removed. It will not be removed. Can the Holy Spirit leave you? No, you were chosen, you were sealed, that is final. God does not take back. Now, in the Old Testament, how do you explain it? Why does it come on some and leave some? It's because in the Old Testament, God puts power behind his priorities. God puts power behind his purposes. So God will choose who he gives his spirit to, and if necessary, he will remove it. So here he chooses to empower David and he removes his power from Saul. For us on this side of the cross, God when God chooses to rush his spirit upon you, it will not be removed. 
But in our text today, he chooses to give the spirit spirit to David and he chooses to remove it from Saul. And with Saul, even more than that, it says that a harmful spirit began to torment him. So we gotta talk about that. What's going on with that? How are we to understand this tormenting spirit? Now, there's lots of different theories on this and lots of different ideas. The one that I tend to agree with um, and the best way that I've heard verses 14 through 23 explain is that after Saul rebelled against God, he became dangerous. He's already shown his temptations for the dark. He's already shown that he will uh, give in to these dark vices that he has. And he has potentially, he potentially can hurt a lot of people. And later on, he will. He's already tried to kill his son. We're going to see paranoia from him, insecurity, and his ego is going to increase. And so as this harmful spirit torments him, it will make him unable to indulge in his temptations. So God in this moment, I believe, is harming Saul as an act of mercy, both to Saul and to the people around him. God can do whatever he chooses and God is pushing back the evil of Saul's temptations. It's temptation to hurt other people. And you see the mercy of God on Saul in this moment. He's he's pushing back the vices that, Saul has. And then you see the mercy of God as he brings David in. As God brings David into the room and David begins to play the harp and it says the harmful spirit would depart from him. So even though God has to restrain the evil of Saul, he will still bless Saul through David. And you see the mirroring of language in this section. At the beginning, the spirit of God leaves Saul and at the end, the harmful spirit will leave him as well. And you see in verse 16 that it's Saul's servants that suggest him suggests that David come. And it's interesting, as David plays the harp, it says that Saul was refreshed. That he, had, he was able to rest. So um, many people believe that the music that was played during, uh, when David was playing was worship music. Who wrote many of the songs of worship? David. But as David played songs of worship, Saul was able to find rest. So look at verse 18. Um, so they're asking, okay, who can come and play? Who can come and help? And it said, one of the young men answered him, behold, I have a son, in Je- a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Now notice here, what does David do after he is anointed? He goes back to shepherding. He goes back to being a shepherd. He doesn't storm Saul's castle. He doesn't become arrogant. Um, He goes back to serving the sheep. Side note, some of you, you feel like God has called you to do something great and you may not be wrong. And you wonder why hasn't God put me in charge? Why hasn't God done this yet? Perhaps God wants you to continue to learn to be a servant, to learn to shepherd, to serve in an area that seems small. Later, he may, give you something to steward that's bigger. But right now he's asking you to be faithful with little. And so uh, David goes back to shepherding. I will always be uh, thankful for the first church I served in, in Holland, Texas. There's nothing in Holland but cows and people. And I'm so thankful they did not record sermons back then because it was terrible, right? Um, But I'm so thankful God forged a heart in that place. It was me and a bunch of 80-year-olds and some teenagers, and it was awesome that God forged me into something else. Don't despise the places where God will create in us humility. 
Notice that when David comes to Saul, he doesn't come to take over. He doesn't come in and go, oh, so this is my kingdom now. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired. Let's get some new drapes in here. He doesn't walk in like that. It says, David came to Saul, verse 21, and entered his service. Entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. It says that David entered Saul's service. There will be times in your life when you will have to serve under someone that you think is not worthy. For all of us, whether it's your job, in the church, wherever, there will be times in your life when you will have to serve when you think that you should be in charge or that they're not a good leader. Beware of the dangers of contempt. There have been times in my life when I've served under the most amazing men and I've learned so much. And there have also been times in my life when I've served under the worst leaders, but I've learned just as much, right? Do not underestimate the value of what it means to, le- to learn to serve in a humble spirit. Remember Samuel, when he is anointed, he had to serve under a wicked Eli, right? Um, because in serving, he learned how to be a good leader. Saul didn't have that. Saul was just thrown into leadership and too much power too, too early can be toxic. And much like Samuel, David is now going to serve under a wicked Saul. Remember I told you last week that Hannah's prayer in chapter two is basically the, the story arc of Samuel one and two. She says in 1 Samuel 2, seven, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And before we see David rise, we see his humility. He entered into Saul's service that God rejects the proud, but he exalts the humble. You will never regret having a servant's heart. You'll never regret serving, but I can guarantee that all of us have moments where we regret the pride that led us, but you'll never regret serving. Now, to close, um, because there's a couple ways to study the life of David. We could read scripture purely through a historical perspective um, where we look at different eras and what happened and what that means. And we will do that and we have done that. Another way to study the life of David is to just compare our lives to his. Okay, David did this, so now I'm gonna do this. Saul did this, so I'm not gonna do this, right? Um, But I told you last week that this story isn't really about David. This story is about the King of Kings, King Jesus. And at the beginning of David's story, we see two things. One is that there was nothing physically unique about him. And two, he was humble. Do you know of anyone else like that in your Bible? Isaiah 53, two. For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The one who is coming to wipe away our sin, the king who is coming won't look like a king at all. In Mark chapter six, they say he looks just like one of us. And we we see here in 1 Samuel that the one who is chosen is surprising. He doesn't look like a king, but he's a servant. Jesus would say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And more than David, Jesus would say, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's exactly what the king Jesus did. Our humble and majestic king buried your sin and my sin with him in his death. And just like he does with our dead souls, he rose from the grave. And now we, on this side of the cross, can have security. We can have happiness. We can find our identity and the blood of Christ. And so when you think about David this week, 
Think about the surprise of God's choosing. You did not deserve to be chosen. You did not deserve to be called by God to be his son or his daughter, but he did. And that's grace, that God reached down and pulled us, pulled us out of the grave and he put a spirit in us and now we are alive. The spirit has rushed on us and there is humility when we realize that we have been called sons and daughters of God. And that's what breathes a worship. That's what makes sincere hearts realizing the grace and mercy that we've received from a great God. And it explodes in our, in our hearts, joy, joy to be called a son or a daughter.